I'll be reading from John 18, verses 33 through 36. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. If you would, please be standing as we sing this next song. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus do not seem consistent with that of royalty. The early chapters of Matthew do not appear to describe the king of the universe. Perhaps the story of Jesus that is recorded is that of a different kind of king. King Jesus is not born in some far-off castle or with great fanfare. Instead, he was born into the muck and mire of the world he came to serve. It is unlikely, but this is how we encounter our king and discover his kingdom. Who is on the throne of your heart? Good morning, church. Um, in case you don't know who I am or you got introduced to me last week in our video, uh, I'm Sam Day. I'm the new youth minister here at Mentors Christ, or one of them. I got roasted by the kids for claiming that I was the only youth minister apparently last week. But as you can tell, I'm not Randy Roper, although we are obviously very similar in age. Um, but I am continuing his series on King Jesus. This idea of King Jesus is all about looking at what does it mean for Jesus not to be a part of your life, but to be the Lord and Savior, the King of your life. And beyond that, looking at what the Jewish people thought when they expected the idea of a king that would come. Today, me and Jeremy are going to look at this idea of not of this world. What does it mean from John chapter 18 that Jesus did not come from this world, that his kingdom was totally different and totally unique from anything we can imagine here today? You know, personally, uh, if you ask my wife or probably any of the youth group kids, they would say to you that I am definitely different. Uh, I'm probably a little weird, but guess what? Uh, if you think I'm weird now, I've improved drastically from when I was in fourth grade. I have gotten steadily more normal. You can see on the screen, uh, one of my golden rules in youth ministry is never take myself seriously. So youth group kids, I'm about to give you guys a lot of ammunition to use against me, so be very kind with it, please. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I decided that I wanted to change my name. I wasn't going to change it from Samuel to Sam. I wanted to change it from Sam to Pickle Fred. So on all my papers, I decided to sign them Pickle Fred Day. I told everyone, my teachers, my parents, my, my classmates, everybody, call me Pickle Fred. I had dog tags. I had a book, which is probably on Amazon. You can see it above here, uh, about Pickle Fred's name-changing journey. I decided that everyone would call me this. But guess what? In fourth grade, I wasn't even the weirdest kid in the class. There were weirder kids than me. Because when you're in fourth grade, everybody is a little weird. Everybody's a little different. There's no one telling you that you're not normal or that you're strange in fourth grade. You're just a fourth grader. You do what you want. And there's some beauty to that. But as we get older in middle school and high school, things begin to change. You know, we have to write 
wear the right kind of shoes, wear the right kind of clothes, have that same kind of acts that's so nasty that we regret later in life, right? We have to have all these things that make us blend in with the people around us. And then as we become adults, we pretend like this doesn't happen. But the reality is we've just gotten better at covering it up. You see, the world influences us every single day. We just use different disguises. We say, I want that new car because it'll be safer for my kids. Or I want that new house because it'll provide stability for my family. Or I want to hang around those people because it might give me the promotion that I need. You see, we're still falling into that same trap of the world. We've just disguised it to make it seem more adult. But the reality is we continue to fall into these traps. And so we as the church have to ask ourselves an important question. Is the church changing the world or is the world changing the church? I think throughout history the answer to this question is so clear. Healthcare, education, orphanages, these are all the results of the church. But if we look at our society today, is this still the case? One of my favorite, least favorite stories from 2023 was the story of a megachurch in Dallas that put on a Christmas pageant recently. This Christmas pageant included over a thousand actors singing songs from The Greatest Showman. It had people coming down from wires on the stage. It had a drone show associated with it. It had live camels and donkeys and musical accompaniments. All of this with over a million dollar budget. They charged attendees to their church service that day anywhere between $50 and $100 to attend the service that day. We might think about that, and I don't know what their baptisms numbers were after the greatest showman. I'm sure it was great. But we look at that and we might think, wow, that church is really messed up. There's no way that we're doing that. But if we look at our own lives today and ask ourselves the question, do I look that different from the world around me? I think the answer would sometimes scare us. Here's a really sad statistic from the Barna Group. 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say the lifestyles of those Christians look noticeably different from the world around them. So tons of young people have met Christians, and yet only 15% of them say those lives look noticeably different. You know, oftentimes we can imagine our lives without Jesus. You know, I've done that drill in my head before, and I, sometimes I think of myself as if I'm going to be this horrible person without Jesus. Like maybe I'm a drug dealer, a gang member, or something crazy. But guess what? Sometimes the reality of that is almost sadder. Would my life look that different? Would it just mean I cuss a little less? Or would it mean I just do these little things differently? Or would it mean that my life is totally different because of Jesus? I think, unfortunately, as Christians, if we ask ourselves this honestly, we'll realize that Jesus needs to change our life in a noticeably different way. But to embrace that new style of kingdom, we have to go back to what that really means. So let's look at this verse from John chapter 18. This is 33 through 36. This is what it says. It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. This story has so many intricate layers. There's no way we could cover it in 15 minutes. 
But I want you to look at Pilate for a second. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking a totally different question than if a Jewish leader were asking, are you the king of the Jews? Because for Pilate, he's basically asking, are you a threat to the government of Rome? Are you a king of the Jews? Are you claiming that you're going to have an insurrection of this earthly kingdom? And Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, flips the question on him. And Pilate responds to him, basically says, this is your people doing this. Your people are the ones telling you that you are the problem. And Jesus utters this line, which is so important and so profound. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. To do a little nerdy Greek work, uh, my kingdom I'm not of the, this world is better translated as my realm is not from this society. My realm is not from this society. So what Jesus is effectively saying is that my idea, my kingdom is not from Rome. It is not from anything that you would comprehend. It puts the emphasis on where the source is. A lot of times in our society, when we think of power, or the source of all these ideas, we have a lot of traditional ideas or images that come to our head when we think of power. Uh, here are some examples on the screen of power in the traditional sense. Uh, you might think of physical strength, like that picture of me um, that's definitely not photoshopped of the rock, right? Uh, you might think of fame, like Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, which hopefully they break up for my chief's sake soon. You might think of political power, like Vladimir Putin, or economic power like Elon Musk, or even religious power like the Pope. All of these things are power as the world understands it. It's a kingdom that they understand. And so when we talk about, as Christians, of creating a kingdom not of this world, oftentimes we fall into the trap of trying to create a Christian kingdom of this world through traditional means of power. Let me tell you about this. Sometimes we think of we need a leader who will take back Christianity for us. Or we think of, we need a celebrity who will just endorse Christianity. Or, or maybe if we gave more money, if more millionaires gave money to Christianity for ads, we would have some way of solving this. Or maybe even we think of, man, if we had someone who was physically strong enough to beat people into submission, to just tell them Jesus was real, this would change people. But guess what? Jesus comes from a kingdom not of this world. These traditional means of power do not work. Jesus comes from a world not of its own. Let me tell you about a different type of kingdom. This man on the screen that you're going to see, his name is Daryl Davis. And you probably don't recognize him like some of the other pictures, but Daryl Davis is creating a new kind of kingdom. He's a blues musician for the past 30 years, has had a really interesting hobby. He has single-handedly taken on the task of fighting the KKK. Now you might think and look at this picture, it's like, how is this man fighting the KKK? What guns is he using? What weapons is he using? How is he taking on this horrible, horrible entity? He's doing it by dinners and coffees and lunches. For 30 years, he has been taking out members of the KKK to dinner, coffee, and lunch, and talking to them and asking them questions. He is single-handedly responsible for 200 members of the KKK throwing away their robes. 200 by himself. A lot of people would have looked at him and said, you're crazy. That's not going to work. Are you being safe? Why would you ever do that? Why would you think that would be effective? But this is the exact type of kingdom that Jesus wants us to create. 
a kingdom of justice and mercy and nonviolence in a world filled with means of taking power and control. Jesus said that he did not want to come to create that kind of kingdom. He came to create a kingdom not of this world. I think, unfortunately, a lot of times as Christians, we fall into a trap. A trap of thinking of a kingdom not of this world as eventually we're going to get there. We just need to bear it up and we've got to make it through this world. But what Jesus is saying in this passage isn't that. What Jesus is saying is that I came to bring here on earth a kingdom not of this world. That is totally different. That does not involve overthrowing people. That is totally unique and beautiful. Let's look at verse 37 and 38 that provides a little more context for this. This is 37 and 38. It says, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, replied Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews and gathered there, said, I have no basis to charge against him. See, Jesus was born to testify truth into a society without truth. Pilate utters this beautiful phrase, which I think we all have uttered, and maybe we're too afraid to admit it. He says, what is truth? See, Pilate's in a Roman society that does not know truth. They have lots of ideas for where truth might be from, a lot of ideas of what truth might be, but there's no source of truth. And Jesus comes and says, I am that source of truth. And if we look at our friends and our neighbors, they might be asking themselves the same question. What is truth? So what do we do in a world without truth? How do we show them truth? And the answer to this is actually from one of the children's songs we sung earlier. You know, the story of the wise man who built his house upon the rocks. This is what Matthew 7, 26 says. It says, but everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So a lot of times when we hear this song, we lose the meaning of it. Guys, when we come to church and we hear a sermon, that doesn't mean we're wise. If we sit here and Sunday is all we do, that doesn't make us building our house on stone. In fact, if we hear the word and do nothing, we are building our house on sand. That's what the point of this is. And so the solution to showing a world without truth, truth isn't to speak more, it's to do more and listen. This is the only way the world without truth will realize truth is to listen and do more, to show Jesus and his kingdom what it means to be here. Unfortunately, the Jews, like us many times, had a totally different vision for what this looks like, and they couldn't comprehend that Jesus was bringing about a new kingdom. John 18, verse 39 through 40. Let's look at this. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time for the Passover, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken a part of an uprising. A lot of times when we read this last passage, we miss the most important part. When you hear this, we've heard it framed, oh, they released Barabbas, a criminal. Why would they do that? Someone who's a murderer. But the point of this story isn't that he's a criminal. The point of the story comes at the very end. They say, now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So to the Jewish audience, Barabbas is an enemy of Rome. To many, they would have thought he was a hero. In fact, to many, they would have thought that he was the king that Jesus was supposed to be. To come to earth, to overthrow the government, to kill Romans, to do what we always wanted him to do. 
And yet Jesus is not that type of king. You see, unfortunately, I look at us and I think that too often we are like the Jewish audience. Jesus has come with a different type of kingdom, something beautiful and amazing and something we can't even comprehend that's so unique and so powerful. And yet we beg for Barabbas. We say, Barabbas, we want someone that will change the world like we want. Like the earth says, power in the sense that makes sense to me and you. But Jesus didn't come to change the world in that way. He wanted his kingdom to change the world, not the world to change his kingdom. And so as we think about our role in our lives, let us not be like the Jews. Let us be like the people that sat next to Jesus that embodied the idea that Jesus was king for a new kingdom. Now that we understand Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, Jeremy's going to look at what does it mean that we live our lives as a part of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks, Sam. Uh, one of my favorite things about youth ministry and my time in youth ministry was the opportunity to see so many baptisms. It is a blessing that I know that I'm going to miss whenever I don't get to see all of those, but just to watch the joy on students' faces whenever they choose to commit their lives to Christ, to watch the joy on their families' faces and even their fellow youth group students as they celebrate this decision to move from death to life. It's, it's excellent. And in those waters of baptism, the confession that they make is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They decide to die to themselves and they choose to follow Jesus with everything that they have. In that moment, Whenever you were baptized, you made that same decision to live as a resident alien, to live in this world, but not of this world, to be a citizen of a totally different kingdom. And what Sam just talked to us about is Jesus says, yes, I am king, but my kingdom doesn't look like this world. It's different. And so my section of this sermon today is to flesh out what does that look like? What does it look like to live as citizens of uh, Jesus's kingdom instead of this worldly kingdom? So if you have a Bible, Head on over to Colossians 3, or it'll be on the screen, but that's where we're going to camp out for the second portion. So Paul kicks off by reminding them of their baptism, and not just to remind them that they're baptized, but this serves as a call to action for them. Your baptism guides everything you do afterwards. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Again, baptism language there, raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You can hear the baptism language there, right? You can hear, you died, you were raised with Christ, you were transformed, you have received the Holy Spirit. So live into that new life. There was transformation that occurred. My favorite kind of analogy for transformation is that of the move from caterpillar to butterfly. Uh, Ryder, our pre-K student, just did this process and was really excited to tell us all about it. But uh, so a caterpillar, what happens in that cocoon? Well, what actually happens in that cocoon is kind of disgusting. Um, so it essentially digests itself. Um, it releases enzymes that dissolve its tissue. And if you were to cut it open at the wrong time, like I guess caterpillar soup comes out. Um, this caterpillar somehow, because God is a great designer, 
its cells realign to form a new creation, and that new creation is a butterfly, and that butterfly comes out. It's beautiful. I kind of get the sense this is something that Paul would have celebrated and said, yeah, this is, this is the story of your baptism. You are transformed, and it's not something you go back to. You can't choose that old life. You have been transformed. You're walking anew in Christ. It would be ridiculous for a butterfly to say, uh, let's go back. Let's run this back. I want that old life. And in the same way, it would be ridiculous for a Christian who's experienced freedom and a new life with Christ to say, uh, I kind of want the old things. If at any point this church is wondering, uh, what was that old life? Paul, Paul wants to remind them, this is what your old life was. This is what an earthly kingdom looks like. Continuing in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs in your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. You were baptized. You chose Christ as Lord. And what that means is to commit your life to his kingdom and not this old kingdom, not the old way of life that you once lived in. And then he, he lays out the values of this old life. And he specifically addresses two areas. It's sexual sin, and then he addresses inappropriate speech. For our world today, whenever we think about sexuality and sex, it, it's a selfish experience for the world. It is a pursuit of pleasure. Um, freedom, uh, freedom of sexual expression without concern for the impact of others is a value that our society has. And to me, it's so sad. It's a distortion of what was, is a good gift from God. Whenever we talk to our youth students about sex and sexuality, we make sure to lay out that it is good and it's God-designed but that it's meant to be enjoyed as God designed it, that it's supposed to unify husband and wife physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and to settle for anything else is just a sad, sad distortion of a good gift that God gave us. And when sexual sin occurs, it hurts those that are involved, but it also hurts those around them, it hurts those in the church, and Paul doesn't want that for this community. Inappropriate speech also is divisive, if you, I'm sure you have somebody in your life that's just, it's a, they're a positive person. They are an encourager. Um, they see the best in others. Those people are magnetic, right? Two people that I think of, and I didn't warn them, so I'm just going to brag on them, and they have to deal with the fact that I'm celebrating them in front of others. But um, Kevin Rayner is one that he just sees the best in people, and he celebrates people. Um, and then the other one in my life, Jennifer Miner, she is amazing. She is so great at celebrating others and seeing the best in others and letting them know th um, th that she sees the fruit of the Spirit in you. Those people are magnetic, right? They draw people in. I'm confident you also have people in your life that don't use their words in that way, that use the language here as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. They try to separate themselves from others they try to be divisive, and those people, not magnetic. You're not drawn to them. You don't always enjoy their presence, okay? Uh, and Paul, again, is saying, you have a gift 
in sex and sexuality, use it as God designed, because if you don't, it'll divide the church. You have a gift in the language that God gave you, in the tongue that God gave you. Use it in a way that builds up, not tears down. <coughs> Excuse me. A quick aside, as we're talking about Jesus as Lord, and as we talk about how we use our language, I think there's something really important that's on the horizon that we need to talk about and we need to address if we are going to own the truth that Jesus is Lord. We're coming up on a political cycle, and for some of you, you look forward to this, and for some of you, you dread this. I understand both perspectives. But I think something we need to own, something we decided in the waters of baptism is, regardless of who is in office, Jesus is Lord. I hope that we can all agree on that. Regardless of who is in office, Jesus is Lord. And everything we do in whatever, in whatever environment should, should be led by the fact that Jesus is Lord, but especially within political conversations. Maybe around your uh, you know, Christmas dinner, politics came up, or maybe that's taboo and you don't talk about it there, but uh, it came up around our family dinner. And if we were all to talk about specifically what we thought on each issue, we probably wouldn't agree on everything. But you know something we agreed on immediately? is we don't enjoy the tone of political conversations, right? Um, that they're discouraging. And if we were to just look at this text, see if this describes the way political conversations usually happen. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. That seems like a pretty decent uh, explanation of how most political conversations have are had, and that's sad to me. If you're a Christian that's heavily engaged in politics, good. I think, I think we need to use every opportunity that we have to help enact justice and bring the kingdom. Whatever opportunity we have to bless others, we should pursue that. But if at any point in this political cycle you feel like your hope is being stolen or you feel like your joy is being stolen, it's time to take a step back. It's time to think about who is actually sitting on the throne. It's time to think about who is truly Lord because Jesus is Lord regardless of who sits on the throne. And so my call for most of you, you would acknowledge that and you're okay with that. But my call to action to you is in this next cycle, let's not let this language describe how we talk. So don't take the opportunity for the easy joke, the cheap joke at somebody else's expense. Don't take the cheap shot. That's, that's how our world talks. Don't slander. Don't name call. Instead, let's witness to the hope that we have in Christ. Let's see the good in others, and let's not slander others. Um, I think by doing so, we're going to let people see the hope that we have. Let's witness to that, that Jesus truly is our Lord. All right, jumping back into the passage in chapter 3. He, at the beginning of chapter 3, we hear, set your hearts on things above, and then he follows it with set your mind on things above. So what does that actually look like in practice? Uh, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, 
I'm not going to camp out in this verse, but this is a pretty good summation of what it looks like to live faithfully in Jesus' kingdom. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it look like to live as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom versus a citizen of the world? Well, citizens of Jesus' kingdom live with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They bear with each other, they forgive each other, they love each other, they are unified. And this is a community that I want to be a part of, right? This sounds magnetic. There's grace. And there's a sense of community that's much bigger than self. That sounds way better than the alternative, than that old world we just talked about. Now, if you're like me, uh, this is confession time for me. Sometimes lists like this are reassuring, but also sometimes for me, they're a little bit overwhelming. And let me explain why. Um, sometimes I think that if I had been alive in Jesus's time, I would have been tempted to be a Pharisee. And the reason being, I really like rules. I really like to understand the expectations and I really like to work hard at achieving those goals or expectations. And so the Pharisees having this long list of rules that they were gonna uphold on their own ability I think I might have struggled with that mentality. And I don't think that's what this list is. Sometimes if we come to scripture and this feels like a to-do list, I need to be more compassionate, I need to be more kind, I need to be more humble, and uh, these are all things that we try to accomplish on our own, we're gonna be exhausted because this doesn't come from us. This comes from that spirit that's put inside us whenever we're baptized. I think this isn't a to-do list that Paul lays on us. I think this is Paul saying, this is the new life that you signed up for, and the Spirit is at work in you, bringing these out of you. I'll, I want to make an analogy that will help us understand that a little bit more. My mom, whenever she learned to drive, she learned to drive in a vehicle that I think is better described as a boat than a vehicle. Um, this is a 1978 Ford LTD. Um, it goes on for days. I think the front bumper and rear bumper are probably in different time zones. That thing is massive. And when she started driving, my grandfather noticed that she was erratic, I guess. Just a lot of really small, really tight adjustments, herky-jerky, which made it miserable to ride with my mom initially. And so finally he asked, what are you looking at? Like, what, why are you all over the place? And my mom had worked out a, a very logical system. The goal when you are driving is to stay in your lane. And so she was using that hood ornament that was about a mile in front of her on the hood, and she was matching it with the line on the outside of her lane. And as long as that hood ornament stayed on that line, she was in her lane. Great. Logical, yes. Dangerous, yeah, kind of. Uh, we need to keep our eyes up. We need to be looking ahead at, you know, anything that could be in front of us. And so that was a good learning lesson for my mom. Where your eyes are, the vehicle goes. And I think that that's a good analogy for our relationship with Jesus and how to live as a member of his kingdom. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then we're going to we're going to manifest all of these things that we're talking about, humility and grace and love for others. It's not us keeping ourselves between the lines. It's not a constant battle of me always accomplishing these things on, on my own. I'm not the one that keeps me in the lane. 
as long as I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, these things are going to manifest in my life, and that should be reassuring. The text says at the beginning, set your hearts on things above, and then it goes on to say, set your minds on things above. If we keep Jesus at the forefront, if we focus on Jesus and pursue him, then it's not a to-do list that we accomplish, but you're going to find that you're naturally more compassionate and humble and all of these things on this list, that we're more unified. And it's going to be because the Spirit is at work within you, not because you have accomplished them on your own as a great accomplisher of to-do lists. So my encouragement to you is, is simply that, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to focus on him. And when you do, you're going to see that everything falls into place. We're about to sing a song. It's one of my favorites. Actually, last time we, I preached, <coughs> we sang the song too, so I'm just playing the hits, I guess. But um, we're going to sing Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I love this song, or this song because it's simple. It's, well, turn our eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth grow dim. They're no longer attractive because I'm going to pursue Jesus with everything that I have. And that's my encouragement for you as we live as citizens of his kingdom. All of this journey starts in the waters of baptism. And this whole series is about King Jesus, about him being Lord, and it's something that you chose whenever you were baptized. But if you haven't chosen that yet, I would love for you to consider that today. That's available to you if you want to be baptized today, but also maybe you haven't had that conversation yet, and you just need to talk so to somebody. I would encourage you to find somebody that you trust, and they would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ and to begin that in the waters of baptism. Or maybe you need the prayers of this church. Uh, you can, our church would love to be praying over you. Uh, there's two ways that you can accomplish that. Um, in just a moment, a couple of our shepherds and their wives are going to make their way to a, the parlor. That's a room just behind me. And whenever we sing, feel free to make your way that way. They're going to be praying over our congregation regardless, but they would love to pray specifically over needs if anybody has a need that they want to share. Or if you would like for our whole congregation to pray over you, we would love to do that. Um, you can do that by coming forward whenever we sing. So whatever your response is, whatever you need, I would pray that you do that as we stand and sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes
gaze upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Please be seated. Uh, this morning we have Darla Curry coming forward. Um, Darla is uh, the mother of Jason Curry, one of our members, and um, she is excited, wants to place membership, wants to minister alongside this church family and be part of what we are doing here and part of what the Lord is doing through this church. And so we're thankful that you uh, want to uh, work alongside this church to serve uh, this community. So uh, if you would, let's say a prayer blessing over Darla and um, her ministry alongside us. Let's bow. God, thank you so much for the blessing of this church family and the place